0: So I don't know about you, but I have a a little bit of a selective memory. Does anyone else have a memory that kind of picks and chooses when you want to remember things? I think kids have selective memories, like big time selective memories. Uh, For example, my daughter, Senny, she, we could be doing a hundred things for her in a day. You know, you get up as a parent and you make her breakfast, right? We'll make pancakes, it's her favorite with, with chocolate chips in it even, you know, right? Uh, we'll drive her to school. We'll pick her up from school on time. We, we might even take her to get ice cream that day. We're going to feed her dinner. We're going to help her with her homework. We're going to tell her that we love her. We're going to play. We're going to do all the things that she wants to play. Make-believe, right? We're going to play, you know, like ninjas. And we're going to play all sorts of cool stuff, right? Whatever she's into at that time. We're going to have an amazing dinner, homemade dinner, not even takeout, right? Homemade dinner, right? To, to feed her and all these things. And then at one point in the day, uh, she does something that she's not supposed to do. And we lose our temper a little bit, right? And we say, Senny, why did you do that? And there's just a complete meltdown. You don't love me. You're so hard on me. Why do you say such mean things to me? Right? It's like, do you even care about me? I wish I was in a different family, right? It's just like... That's like what we get, right? And it's like there's a there's an agenda, right? Like if if you sometimes our memory aligns with our agenda, what we're what we're after. Uh, and I think that in those cases, it's to guilt us and to make us feel bad, so that she never gets in trouble, or we're afraid of her response, so we don't correct her. Uh, whatever it is, right? And I think that. Um, it's, it's interesting that Jesus, up until this point, has actually talked about his death and resurrection a number of times. Luke 24 is not the first time that these women, who were his disciples, and then the other disciples that were in the room uh, that we hear about later in that house, heard about this. We didn't actually cover this in our, in our uh, passages, but there were a number of times in the passages that we preached over the last few months where Jesus alludes to or even states the fact that he is the Messiah and that his Messiahship is different than what they would expect. Then chapter 9, which we haven't got to yet, uh, Jesus asks the disciples, who am I? And Peter proudly says, you are the Christ, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And then Jesus goes on to specifically say, you are right, Peter. I'm going to build my church upon your back. And by the way, I'm going to die. And then three days later, I'm going to be, I'm going to resurrect. All of them heard it, right? No one asked any questions. I don't know. Why didn't they ask any questions? And then it happens again in chapter 16, where Jesus alludes to, again, his death and his resurrection. So there's some sort of... um, I don't know, like, selective hearing that's going on, right? That they're expecting something to be true about Jesus, and so they're kind of ignoring the things that maybe they didn't quite understand. And so the women go to with their spices with zero expectation that Jesus would be resurrected. Even the men... Uh, on the road to Emmaus, which is the passage that comes after this. If you remember, if you're familiar with this story, uh, there's two men, they've, they've left Jerusalem, they're seven miles away, and Jesus meets them on the day that he resurrects. And they, he says, what are you guys talking about? And they're like, you don't know? You don't know what happened to Jesus. You don't know all these things. And they go through this whole ordeal. And Jesus kind of plays dumb and acts like he doesn't really know what they're talking about. And he basically gets to the heart of what they were hoping for and longing for in Jesus. And in verse uh, 21, he essentially says this. They describe Jesus as a prophet, powerful in word and deed, before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But listen to this. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. So these women and these disciples on the road to Emmaus and then the other disciples in the house that we hear about in a little bit, they had this hope. They had this expectation. Everybody longs for God to act in their time, don't they? I mean, we long for God to do something in the here and now, and these people were no different. They heard stories from their birth about how God created the universe and how God had chosen Abraham amongst, amongst people, not because of his worth or stature or anything he had done, but to, to be a father of all nations. They heard about the Exodus and how God rescued their people from slavery and led them to the promised land. They learned about the exile and how their nation was split in two and how God brought them out of exile and back into their land forever. And they'd heard for centuries about this coming Messiah King that would come and would set things right. He would defeat their enemies. He would bring justice to the world. And that he would be God's king and rule and reign all the nations of the world. And so they had this incredible disappointment about what had happened thus far. They had hoped that Jesus was that Messiah. But maybe God wasn't acting in their time. Maybe they would never see the Messiah. Uh, I was listening to a, a comedy show this week. I like stand-up comedy. And um, one of them talked about this, and then I was listening to another sermon on Easter, for, and the pastor brought up this. So I'm just going to use it, okay? I'm going to use this analogy today. I'm not funny like the comedian. Uh, I'm not going to try to be. But uh, how many of you have seen the movie The Sixth Sense before? Anybody seen that movie? All right, It's going to be spoiled today if you have not. And, and don't pretend like you're going to watch it this afternoon, okay? Like, there's no way. Oh, 20 years later, this is the day, right? All right, in that movie, in that movie, uh, it's an amazing ending, isn't it? Like, you don't know what's happening. You're like, what is going on? Why won't the wife talk to him, right? Like, Bruce Willis uh, you know, is the doctor, the child psychologist, and you can't figure out what's happening. And at the end of the movie... I'm not again spoiler alert he's dead the whole time he's he's dead bruce willis is dead and and you're shocked and you're just like completely amazed by how uh that th- he's been dead this whole time and i wouldn't recommend watching the movie again i i watched it 20 years ago and I, I but i can imagine as i've watched like little snippets of it here and there when it's been on tv or whatever else that you start to see like how did i miss it right like, there are lots of clues. Number one is he's shot right away. Like He's shot, you know, like in the stomach, right? Like, he's, you know, that would be one. Number two, the wife never makes eye contact with him the whole time. He's talking to her, and she's just kind of staring off into space most of the time. So there's lots and lots of clues that they're starting to miss. And sometimes we just can't see what the reality is or what's going on. We can't remember what's said because we're so focused on kind of what we know to be true or the context with which we've grown up in or the truths that we've been told all of our lives. And so it's unsurprising that the disciples, even when the women came back to him and said, we saw angelic beings. They appeared out of nowhere. The stone was gone. Jesus' body is gone. And they said that you're looking for a, a live person among the dead. And they said, ah, I don't think so. Right? These women must be crazy. These women must be out of their minds. They must be confused. Verse 11 says they did not believe the women because they were saying they, what they said seemed like nonsense. Maybe they thought someone stole the body. Maybe they thought these women were just having these, these, these you know, weird hallucinations. Like, who knows what they thought? But they did not believe this. Even though they had all these clues, even though the women told them what was going on, they still missed the point, just like we missed the point watching that movie. But Jewish people, their context and their culture and their understanding of God at that time is that they didn't believe in a resurrection like this of the Messiah. They believed that uh, people could speak of a prophet like Elijah or John the Baptist returning from the dead. But what they probably meant by that was that someone would come who seemed to embody the same spirit, the same fiery prophecy. The resurrection for them was the end of days type event when they would be resurrected in the new heavens and the new earth. After Israel's great and final suffering, all God's people would be given new life and new bodies so we shouldn't be surprised then at how surprised they were on that first Easter morning. It wasn't just a lack of faith that had stopped them understanding what Jesus had said about his rising again. is that they simply had never dreamed that one single living person would be killed, dead, and then raised to a new sort of bodily life on the other side of the grave. And while the rest of the world just carried on as normal. I think that we have this picture of these first century disciples as sort of naive, like they would just believe anything. But I think that this narrative shows us very clearly that this was not something they just accepted. The second, even the angels told them, and the women were like, oh, that's interesting. You know, they weren't like, Jesus is risen, right? They're just kind of like, hmm, let's go tell the others, see what they think, right? This is not something they expected. This is not something they easily believed. So we kind of see the way that the followers of Jesus responded. Now how do you think people that were outside of that discipleship room of Jesus and that, that group would have taken all of this? I just want to use the Apostle Paul as an example in this situation. I think that the Apostle Paul would have been, and was, deeply offended by the cross and this claim of resurrection. He was completely offended by it. See, he understood the Messiah to be the anointed one, the chosen one, blessed by God, having the favor of God, someone that would please God. And here's Jesus, supposed to be the Messiah, who dies on a cross. Even the Romans knew that this was the lowest of the low. This is the worst that you could get. This is a a criminal's death, a false Messiah's death. And he knew that cursed is someone who was nailed to a tree in the way that Jesus was. The Messiah would be someone that was, should be accompanied by God. But Jesus was cursed by God, abandoned by God. And he would probably think, what kind of idiot do you think I am? To believe that the Messiah would die on a cross. So it's not surprising, it's completely unsurprising that he does not believe in the resurrection The death for him of Jesus, straightforward, meant Jesus simply was not the Messiah. And it made Paul absolutely furious to the point that he started killing and jailing Christians who proclaimed this belief. Now, what possibly moves the disciples from disappointment to disbelief to (laughs) being scared and fearful from Paul to be completely offended by this whole idea. What moves them from disappointment, disbelief, cowardice, Paul from being offended and angry, to this unshakable faith that we see as the Bible moves forward. How did Peter move from denying Jesus to preaching to thousands of people in, the, in Jerusalem in a couple weeks? How could the disciples go from abandoning Jesus and being in mourning to worshiping Jesus by the end of this chapter, chapter 24. Verse 52. We have that on the screen. Can we put that up? It says, They worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. They worshipped Jesus with great joy. How could that have happened? How could that have transpired? You think they just got motivated all of a sudden? They went from being like, Jesus. Paul wouldn't even say that he knew Jesus to then being this person willing to give this whole picture of how Jesus fulfills as an uneducated man, fulfills all of the Old Testament. It's all that they had longed for. And Jesus had risen from the dead and now should be worshiped as fully God and fully man. The only explanation for this, in my opinion, is the resurrection, that it actually happened. That these men and these women who were completely distraught and dismayed and saddened and in disbelief and and, and lived in kind of like this cowardly exile in this house while they were trying to figure out what they are going to do. The men on the road to Emmaus were seven miles away from Jerusalem. Zero expectation that anything would happen. But the resurrection is the answer of possibly what could have transpired for them to change their course. Because if Jesus is raised from the dead, then Jesus isn't cursed. Instead, God has vindicated him. It shows that if Jesus did resurrect from the dead, that God is actually pleased with Jesus, that he loves him, that he he blesses him. And if God does love him and isn't pleased with him, then when he is cursed and abandoned, it is not for his own sin, but someone else's sin. Uh, One of the men on the road to Emmaus was named Cleopas. And Jesus takes him and the other disciple and he goes through it all. Verse 25 says this and following. And he said to them, how foolish you are. And how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter into his glory? Verse 27 says, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning him. And then again, when he gets with all the other disciples... They're eating fish. And he says to them in verse 44 With more of the disciples, Jesus has fulfilled all that was spoken to him in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. So essentially, Jesus explains to them how all the things that they've missed in the scriptures thus far, and how all this makes sense, and how all of this was promised, and how if they just could look beyond themselves, they could have seen it all along. In the same way that if you watch The Sixth Sense again, you would see it all along. D.A. Carson in his book about the love of God takes a, a, a moment to imagine what Paul might have been doing after seeing the resurrected Jesus on the road to Damascus and being blind for three days. Can you imagine? Like, think about that. Like, he's, Paul is on his way to persecute Christians and All of a sudden, he meets the resurrected Jesus, and he's blind. Here's this man that's completely certain about what he thinks about Jesus, so much so that he's willing to persecute others. And that's that's being pretty certain, right? And he's blind, and he's just sitting there. And he's probably thinking, I wonder if I'm going to get my sight back. Like, I wonder what's going to happen here. But he also probably started to evaluate things, right? And Paul knew his Bible like none of us know our Bibles. And he probably started to recall and to think about these things. And this is my summary of what Dr. Carson says. He says, maybe he thinks of Isaiah. In the first portion of the book, the Messiah is a great king. In the second half of the book, he's a suffering servant. Could they be the same person? Because Jewish people always separated them. Maybe he considered the sacrificial system that he had grown up observing. And the temple... And he starts thinking about the whole thing. Did the blood of goats and lambs and bulls completely atone for sin? Or what if that system was pointing to something? If it was pointing towards Jesus, what does that mean? Right? Like These are thoughts he's coming into his mind for the first time. He's reinterpreting and re-understanding everything that he had missed before. Maybe he considered Ezekiel and Jeremiah who pointed to a new covenant and writing the law on hearts. Maybe in light of Jesus, that time is happening right now. Maybe he considered Abraham and the promise to Abraham that all the nations would be blessed through him. What if the death and resurrection of Jesus would provide a way for all of the nations on earth to be blessed? See, once he understood the cross and the resurrection, it all made sense to Paul. It all made sense for the, to the disciples for that matter. They believed the Messiah would come Previously, they believed that Messiah would come and he would be strong and he would take on the strong and he would save the strong and he would fight with the strong. But now he saw that Messiah became weak and came in weakness to save those who are weak and who could admit their weakness to be saved. Everything opened up and it all began to make sense. And I love Cleopas in verse 32. He says this as Jesus is leaving. Uh, they say it together, the, the two men. He says, They say, we are not our hearts burning within us while we talked, while he talked with us on the road and opened up the scriptures to us. You can just imagine, right? Complete despair. And then Jesus just explains everything to them. And how they're just like, they had their spirits just like, oh my gosh, it all makes sense. This is Jesus. He's alive. This is how we interpret this. This is how we understand this. I cannot wait to share. I mean, it would have been like your whole life was all making sense right before. And I just, I just think that this demoralized group on Good Friday, the bewildered people on, on, on Sunday, in a few short weeks, their cowardice has been replaced with this amazing courage in Jerusalem. I think the Bible gives us the key to that. And it has to be that Jesus is alive from the dead. And this is why Peter and everyone else went out and did what they did. This is really the only explanation that makes sense to me. And I think it fits with how the disciples explain it. If you read the New Testament, you never will find the apostles trying to like uh, apologetically, you know, like trying to use apologetics to prove the resurrection of Jesus. They just like, they didn't like, give proofs. They didn't like try to explain it that well. Isn't that odd? Like they, they weren't like, uh, they themselves were the evidence. They, they saw it with their own eyes. Like they could have been like, you know, like, you know he didn't steal the body because, you know, the guards were there, but then they fell asleep and he's got this, you know, it's like they didn't try to explain it. They said, we saw him. And 500 people saw him too. And our lives are examples of, you know who we were before? Now look at us. (laughs) There's no theories, there's no proof, there's no explanations, because they themselves were the evidence. What they provide for us are the lives changed entirely by contact with the risen Jesus Christ. This was unmistakable reality and the truth that they lived by. So what did this truth mean for their lives? Well, the rest of the New Testament shows what it meant. What does this truth mean for ours? I'm not sure that we've allowed the resurrection to shape our lives the way that the early disciples did. See, there's a funny thing about truth. Oftentimes we don't really want to know the truth. Like we we kind of want to just, I don't know, just kind of live in uh, in lies. (laughs) Let me give you an example. All right. If you know me at all, uh, I love... Diet Coke, all right? And some of you thought, Dave's going to use Diet Coke to quench his thirst up here. No, not so. I love Diet Coke. It tastes so good, okay? Let's just admit it. Let's just admit it, all right? It tastes so good. It's sweet. It's got this great carbonation in it. And uh, it's delicious, right? Especially from McDonald's. I don't know. Does anyone know? Why it's so much better at McDonald's than in this can right here. I've heard it's something to do with the water, but there's no water in Diet Coke, right? There's no water. Let's be honest about that, right? Um, a number of times, Sarah, my wife, had said, why don't you look at what's in that Diet Coke? Why don't you, like, check out the ingredients? And I said, I, I just want to be real clear with you, Sarah. It says no sugar. And no calories. I don't want to know anything else. I don't want to know what's in this Coke. I want to go on believing that no sugar and no calories means that my body is going to be just fine drinking this for the rest of my life. But the question does beg itself, right? How do you make something taste so sweet without any sugar or any calories? (laughs) Again, I don't really want to know. I would prefer ignorance and to live in my ignorance because I don't want to be confronted with the fact that this Diet Coke is actually killing me. It really is. And the reality is it came like right to my face over Christmas because I drink a lot of Diet Coke and I started getting headaches. I started getting like really, really bad headaches. And I went to the doctor and they said, you have extremely high blood pressure. Tell us about your diet. And I said, well... You know, once in a while, I have some sugar. Well, what kind of drinks do you have? Ah, uh, Diet Coke. Well, that's one thing. That's something that could cause you all sorts of problems with high blood pressure. Now, they said hereditary, like it's hereditary, right? It's, also, it's got some other things, too. But this is not helping, essentially, is what they're saying. And this is what I find with truth, is that even um, if I don't accept the truth... It doesn't change the reality that it is true in the ramifications for my life, right? I can ignore, I can pretend that there's no sugar and no calories in this. And deep down inside, uh, even if I won't admit it, maybe not deep down inside, it's still bad for me. Because it's true whether I admit it or not. And I think that most people's belief systems are based upon desires and not truth. When I meet with people, um, sometimes you hear them say, um, I refuse to believe in a God that would ask me to do this. And you're like, you refuse? I refuse to believe in a God that would judge me. I refuse to believe in a God that would allow me to suffer. And it's like, really? Like, you, you refuse? Like, what if it's, tr- like it's true whether you believe it or not, right? Like, either, either God would allow you to suffer or he wouldn't. Like, it's just true or not true, right? Right? <laughs> And I think our culture is a lot more about um, likes and dislikes when it comes to truth. But Paul, um, you know, he hated and was offended by Christianity and the gospel. Um, and the idea that he no longer needed the temple and that he no longer needed the sacrificial system. Uh, all that he knew and loved. But when he saw Jesus, even though he was very, probably very difficult for him, it didn't matter. He wanted the truth. And Christianity is sort of, I don't know, unique in that way, is that it kind of all hinges on this event, doesn't it? It all hinges on the resurrection. Because if it is true, then it really should change everything. And if it's not, then we just go on about our days, right? Let's eat some good food and drink as much Diet Coke as we want. Well, we can do that either way, I guess, but. Christianity is, is sort of annoying. It's like an irritating religion uh, compared to some of the other ones because uh, because a lot of times when you're trying to decide what you believe about a religion, you, you have to like, you, you read about it and you decide if you like it or you don't like it. Does that make sense? Like, like if you're going to study Buddhism, you kind de- of read about Buddhism and you're like, okay, I like this, so I'm going to practice this or I'm going to do this. But Christianity uh, is about an event. And it's about a person in Jesus Christ. It doesn't depend on if you like it or not. It's true or it's not true. This is why when people say, I could never become a Christian. You might ask them why. And they say, I find parts of the Bible offensive. Uh, I couldn't believe what it said about money. Or I couldn't believe what it said about sex. Or I can't believe what it said about whatever, right? I can't believe what it says about forgiveness. But because you find things in the Bible that are offensive, that in no way determines whether or not Jesus rose from the dead or didn't. (laughs) And so I think it's really healthy for us to have a starting place that has to do with Jesus and maybe just put aside some of the moral decisions first, right? the things that offend you, put those to the side at first, and you need to determine, if you're here today and you're questioning whether or not you believe in Christianity, it's not so much whether you like what Jesus says about money, it has to do with whether Jesus resurrected from the dead. And this is the way that Paul frames it, this is the way that all the writers and Christians, uh, and, and really, one of the, some of the greatest scholars that have ever existed that are Christians, they usually start with the resurrection, because this hinges upon this. Paul was different than us. The truth came to him in the resurrection of Jesus, and it changed everything for him. The resurrection is the only way, in my opinion, that Paul and the others could have made this radical shift in just a couple weeks. And the resurrection actually happening is the only way that the culture of that time could have changed so, so quickly. Typically when you study like philosophical shifts in our cultures about what people believe, it takes a long time. What happens is usually people believe in a certain set of principles, right? And then there's this outlier. There's this one person that's really radical, and they write all these radical things, and everybody attacks them, and they say, that's a terrible idea. You're stupid. You're dumb. You're, you know, you're this, and they give you all sorts of names and labels and all this crazy stuff. And what happens is, is that some people say, yeah, I don't agree with that, but a couple of things that they said make sense, Right? And then a few more people say, yeah, I wouldn't go that far, but I'm somewhere a little bit closer to that. And over time, over centuries, essentially, people move and and beliefs change. But for the Christians, everything that they had been taught, everything that they inherited, everything that they were taught to believe about God and the world and the scriptures was radically changed because of the resurrection. And not only that, but culture changed. Christianity within just a couple hundred years to become the dominant force of the empire over Greek philosophy, over all these other beautiful philosophies that you may study and, 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 and debate. like, how did that happen? How did that change? It changed in a way that no, it has no other time in history. The Jewish people were the last people on earth to believe that a human being could be God. And within a few days after Jesus' death, they started worshiping a man, a a God-man. Remember, they couldn't even say the name Yahweh in the Old Testament. Something must have shattered their paradigm. See, the resurrection is not some symbolic action. It's a paradigm-shattering reality in the world. And to them, it was a fact, and it changed everything for them. So maybe you're here today, and you're a Christian, and you're good on the resurrection. Maybe some of you are doubting. Uh, Maybe some of you are frustrated. Uh, And I just would say today, I understand there's a lot to be frustrated about. There's a lot to be angry about. There's a lot of things to doubt about. I'm with you. But if the resurrection is true, what does that mean for our lives It really is good news. It's not just a fact. It's not just true. It really is good. It really is beautiful. see, the disciples were disoriented about the death and the resurrection of Jesus, but the truth of the resurrection allowed their expectations and their narratives to be redrawn. It moved them from fear to courage, from disappointment to joy, from offense to hope. It reinterpreted their lives and how they viewed Scripture and how they interpreted culture instead of the other way around. They knew that Jesus was good and merciful and loving and they came to understand that the, what the resur- resurrection meant that it was our everything is ours in Christ. And so just like for an example think about what the resurrection means for those of you that are in a difficult marriage right now. You know like there's no way out, right? I want to be I want to I want to stay in this marriage but there's really no way out and this is miserable. The resurrection says you will miss nothing because this isn't the end of that. There's a wedding feast in heaven and it's yours. Those of you that are sick right now and long for healing, I believe that God could heal you right now, but healing is absolutely promised in the resurrection. It's yours in Jesus. Those of you that are impossibly sad and depressed and long for joy, It is yours in Jesus, in the new heavens and the new earth. You'll know nothing but joy, nothing but delight. I don't believe anyone else is offering you that type of hope. You will miss nothing. It's all coming in the future, and it will all be unimaginably wonderful. Everything sad, everything hard, everything painful will become untrue in Jesus. And this is the other good news. Is that this access to the resurrection, this access to the resurrected life in Jesus, is available to us? I was listening to a blurb of a sermon by a man named Alistair Begg. Probably many of you have not heard of him. He's I think uh, Scottish, and he pastors a church in Ohio. And so I'm totally going to rip off this illustration. Okay, I'm just just this is this is Alistair Begg. Alright. And he starts off by saying, if this if you were to die tonight and you were to stand before God, what would you say for him to let you into heaven? And I was like, Oh man, I hate that stuff. Like I that's so corny, right? No, like it's, it's like that's like this case sh- fear in everybody. And I was like, Man, like I would not I almost I almost paused it and said, Forget it, Alistair. Like no more, right? It makes people feel so awkward. But in some ways, it's probably not the worst question in the world, right? Like, if we're being honest, we just don't like it. So, uh, um, <laughs> so he says um, if you answer that question in the first person, then you totally missed it. Most religions, you'd walk before God, whatever God you believe in, you say, Because I did this. Because I believed, because I've had faith, because I was a good person, because I stood up for what was right, because I have this, because I've done that. But because of the cross and the resurrection, only in Christianity is that question answered in the third question in the third person. Because he. Because Jesus. And I want to think about the thief on the cross. Have you ever thought about the thief on the cross that that trusts in Jesus at the very end? Imagine him showing up in front in, uh, to heaven, right? In the paradise, as it says in the passage. This man that's just been crucified for his actions in the world. A few minutes before, he's probably mocking Jesus with his friend. And a few weeks before that, he was leading some sort of revolt against Rome as an insurrectionist. This man never was water baptized. He had never gone to a Bible study in his entire life. He'd never told anyone about Jesus. He never fought for ag- or against injustice. And they might say, uh, how did you make it? Why are you here? And he'd be like, I don't know. <laughs> uh, what do you mean you don't know? They'd say, excuse me, I'm going to go get somebody else like a supervisor and bring them over here right? Supervisor comes and says, "You are, are, are you clear on the doctrine of justification by faith? Alone, without works. And he says, I've never heard of that. What about scripture? Do you believe in it? Do you believe in every last word of it? Um, I don't know. It's a little confused by that questioning. And so maybe they just say, okay, on what basis can you be here? And he might just say, the man on the middle cross said I could come. That's it. The cross and the resurrection declares that forgiveness and salvation are yours because Jesus died for your sins and my sin and conquered the grave. Jesus is just saying, Will you take the gift? You don't have to do anything to deserve it or earn it, but that you're going to have something unimaginably wonderful in your future in store because of the truth of the resurrection and what Jesus did on the cross for your sin. Everything sad will become untrue. That Everything is yours in Christ. So why don't we be people that said, the guy in the middle of the middle cross said we could come.